I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to start a startup. We haven't done this in a while. As always, if you end up starting this idea for real, give me a holler. I like to pursue ideas on the side, even if I'm not totally sold on actually going after them full steam at the start. And since we've done this so much with people at Tacklebox so frequently for so long, we've got a nice little time-tested rubric that you can use to evaluate your idea too. I work on these ideas for two reasons. First, it's the type of thing that I find fun. Testing out an idea means talking to people and trying to understand why they do things, which is a skill that'll take you just about anywhere you want to go in life. Understanding incentives and the action that follows those incentives is like 95% of everything. Understanding incentives and action better than other people is the foundation for a business. Someone once told me that if you can figure out what makes people tick, you can sell them a clock. That saying is really dumb, but it stuck with me, so there it is. The other reason I pursue fringe ideas is because everything great you've ever seen, every product, every movie, every piece of art, they all started out as something that was all but guaranteed to not be all that great, something that was an experiment, something someone had to go a bit out of their way to try to pull on a thread. So why not? Doing this over and over will make sure you're always close to the shore. I'll explain that because it almost certainly means nothing to you. And just a programming note, I've been with my wife in the woods in Nova Scotia for a week, which means I ended up with a notebook full of like 10,000 little quips that I'm going to try and not jam all into this one episode, but I can't promise anything. Edit to amplify is apparently something I say, not something I do. So back to getting closer to the shore, which is something I jotted down while on a river in Cape Breton. When I was maybe 14 years old, my dad and I went fly fishing in Montana. Neither of us had ever fished before or taken a trip with just the two of us, but my dad was working a ton and we needed something to do together. So off to Montana for four days of fishing, we went. The fishing was definitely the excuse, but we still needed to learn how to do it. So we hired a fishing guide to teach us and row the boat. It was ugly from the start. Fly fishing is much harder than it looks. You cast constantly every few seconds as the guide rows the boat down the river. It's definitely not a crack a beer and wait for the fish sort of thing. As we floated and casted, our guide hollered instructions. Really just the same instruction over and over. Closer to the shore, closer to the shore. I'd cast my line a foot or so from shore, what I'd consider close, but I'd catch nothing and he'd just look at me and say, gotta be closer, and we'd row on. The problem with trying to be close to the shore as a beginner is that you spend a ton of time casting onto the shore where bushes and trees line the water. Your line gets tangled up and the guide has to row over and extract your line or just cut it and fix you up again, which takes 10 to 15 minutes. This is mortifying and I hated it. I hated making this poor guy untangle my line. I hated making my dad sit there for 15 minutes while my line got untangled. I hated sitting there like an idiot with no way to help. So... I stopped casting towards the shore. I kept my line a safe three to five feet from the trees at all times, never trying to get it close. I caught zero fish, but at least I didn't make everyone wait and untangle my line. And then our guide stopped rowing and dropped anchor. He looked at me, smiled, and said, I know what you're doing. 
I played dumb. Cast your line into the bushes, he said. I was caught off guard and I did nothing. He repeated himself. Cast your line into the bushes. I cast my line maybe two feet from shore into the water. He then asked if he could see my rod. I gave it to him, and he proceeded to cast my line about 30 feet past the shore into the trees, long gone. He yanked on the rod and the line snapped in two. He reeled it in and started tying on a new fly for me to fish with. As he was tying, he looked at me. There are no fish in the middle of the river, he said. They're all under the bushes, which means that sometimes you're going to cast too far and you're going to be in those bushes and we're going to have to reset. That's the tax you pay for catching fish. And everyone in this boat is more than happy to pay it because if you don't pay it, you might as well just sit there with your thumb up your ass because you ain't going to catch shit in the middle of the river. And I'm not here for a goddamn boat ride. Then he tossed in a huge wad of chewing tobacco and we rode on. 14-year-old Brian thought this was just about the coolest thing he'd ever seen. I will never forget that guide or this story or the 27 other stories he told me that I couldn't dream of telling on the podcast. His name was HR, and when we asked him why, he said, well, it's because all the ladies say I'm a home run. What HR lacked in wordplay, he apparently made up for in life advice. About 10 minutes later, my cast ended up five feet in the bushes and he let out a holler. Hell yeah, now we're getting somewhere. He ended up cheering every time I cast in the bushes the rest of the trip. About five casts after casting into the bushes, I landed my fly about a half inch from the shore and a 20 inch rainbow trout grabbed it. I reeled it in, we took a picture and let him go, and I've realized ever since the best stuff in life isn't in the middle of the river and it doesn't come without a tax. Be happy to pay it. This pod is about casting to shore. Maybe we'll catch a fish, maybe we'll end up in the bushes. Either way, it's great. It's just the tax we pay for ending up at something interesting eventually. This stuff is always going to be messy and it usually won't work until it does, which is why we try. So let's get to it. After a word from our good friends at Build. This episode of Idea to Start a Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Build. That's B-Y-L-D-D.com. They're a development agency that helps early stage startups build and launch scalable revenue generating software businesses. Development from non-technical founders and teams without a tech person on them is the massive elephant in the room that just sits there judging you while you run all of your customer work and intent tests. And once you've validated your idea and you know that customers want what you've decided to build, you've got to figure out how to build it. That's where things get sticky. You probably don't have 100K to throw at a huge creative agency, and even if you did, for your first product, you probably shouldn't. You might roll the dice on Upwork, and it might work, but you'll need to project manage the whole thing. The cost will be a black box, and I cannot stress enough the might in that first sentence. For 10K and roughly a month of work, Build will get your validated product up and out. We've advertised Build a few times, and the one question we've been asked is, can companies that work with them end up growing big? The answer is absolutely. They've worked with companies that have gone on to Y Combinator and raised money at 10-figure valuations. Build is the way to get your first product built. And that product can lay the infrastructure and the foundation for any size company. Head to build.com to talk to Ayush. That's B-Y-L-D-D.com and tell him you heard about it through Idea to Startup. Back to it. When my wife and I travel, we always do two things. First, we watch a ton of house hunters in hotel rooms. We never watch it anywhere but hotel rooms. And man, I have an irresponsible amount of fun watching a couple say something like, 
We want a beach view and a pool and a yard for our dogs and five bedrooms, and our max price is $250,000. Good luck! Then, when they inevitably find it, I get super depressed that I live in New York City where that won't get you a bag of salt and vinegar potato chips at a local bodega. But this podcast has nothing to do with house hunters or salt and vinegar chips, which, by the way, are the best of all the chips. It does have to do with the second thing we do on vacation, which is come up with startup ideas. We were in Nova Scotia last week, Airbnb hopping our way from Halifax to Cape Breton and back. The idea itself came from those Airbnbs. We stayed in a few Airbnbs that clearly put a ton of time and effort into their decor. Whoever designed these spaces, particularly our last one, either hired an interior designer or was just super talented. We even tried to Google the mugs to see where they were from and maybe buy a few for ourselves. We agreed that we couldn't be the first people to do something similar, to want to buy the stuff from this place. And then I thought, I wonder if any of these thoughtful Airbnb hosts have ever set up stores where you can shop what they have in their apartments so that they can make a little extra money on affiliates. A few Googles led me to a tentative no, and that was the idea for the trip. Is it a good idea? Probably not. But maybe? Who knows? We'll see. The purpose of an Airbnb for most people is to make extra money, I think. I don't have one. My guess is that you're either buying a place that'll be totally supported by the Airbnb income, or you're renting out part of your house to subsidize the rest of it. The Airbnb with the decor we loved seemed to be doing the second one. We were in the top floor of their house. But again, I can't stress how much this is a think rather than no situation. I'm totally guessing. And this is how most ideas start. Maybe you've had ideas like this. I mean, if you're listening to this pod, you almost certainly have. Maybe you have a few of these a day. The big question is, what do you do with them? How do you get out of the middle of the river with them? How do you cast to the shore? Today, we'll go through a three-step evaluation process. By the end, hopefully, we'll be in the bushes or hooked into a fish. You can use these for your idea, and I hope you do. The three steps are, one, whisper versus rooftop. What do we need to know? Two, rivers and dams. Where's our customer going, and where do they get stuck? And three, a hypothesis test. Is there something here? Let's get to it. Whisper ideas versus rooftop ideas. I've mentioned these on the pod in the past, and they seem to stick because people quote them back to me all the time. There are two types of ideas, whisper ideas and rooftop ideas. Whisper ideas are the ones I see the most. I call them that because when people pitch me whisper ideas in coffee shops, they look both ways first and lean in real close and whisper me what it is they're doing. They do this because their differentiator, the thing that matters, is simply that they notice this problem first. Anyone else who heard this idea could take it and run with it. Nothing in the founder's experience or network or skill set gives them an unfair advantage. So they whisper. They're scared. Rooftop ideas are the opposite. These people happily tell me their ideas loudly without asking me to sign an NDA or do anything else silly. They'd stand on the rooftop and shout out their idea if you asked them to because it doesn't matter if someone heard it because there's no way a random person could beat them at it. They've often been subconsciously preparing to start the idea for the past five or 10 years, building knowledge bases and skill sets and networks to give them a completely unfair advantage. You probably know which idea I'd love for you to start with, and you probably know which one yours is. If it's something that you want to whisper, there's your answer. Rooftop ideas are far more likely to succeed, but honestly, most of the ideas I hear are whisper ideas, so we'll talk about those today. 
The important thing though is knowing which one you've got. Treating a whisper idea like a rooftop idea is a disaster. There are three revealing questions you can ask yourself to figure out which one you've got if instinctively you don't already know. First, what's your unfair advantage? Second, what secret do you know that other people don't? And third, what have you done that gives you a different perspective on the problem than 99% of other people? The bigger the secret, the more defensible. Maybe you've been a patent attorney for 15 years and you know something that no one else who hasn't been a patent attorney for 15 years could ever possibly know. That's the start of a rooftop idea. But if you just traveled around Nova Scotia for a week watching house hunters and you came up with an idea about Airbnb hosts selling their stuff, when you've never been an Airbnb host or built a marketplace selling home goods or bought any stuff from an Airbnb, well, buddy, that's a whisper idea. Anyone could have it. Thousands of people almost certainly have. What that means is we need to dig in a bit. We need to find a secret because we don't have one already. This means speaking with customers. 95% of people with the idea won't ever do that, so right away we'll be in the lead. Speaking with customers, as you probably know, is hard, so we'll make it easy. For the first conversation, I'd suggest just talking to the person that spurred the idea. Create a hypothesis around them and then talk to them to see if that hypothesis is right or at least on the right track. So in my case, my hypothesis is that if the person who runs the last Airbnb we stayed at could easily sell the stuff in her house and get affiliate income for it, she'd seek it out. Ideally, she's already trying to do this. And hopefully, for our sake, that process is hard and we can make it easy. And that is where our exploration is going to start. Speaking with my host, hopefully, and people like her. All babies are cute. We need to learn more about this baby and see the ugly side. That only comes from customers. So the results of step one. This is, without a doubt, a whisper idea, which means I am secret hunting. I don't show up with one, which means I'll likely need to over-index on conversations with customers. I'll probably need to find a champion, someone who's already an industry expert, who's invested in the idea and wants to work with me, which means I need a place to start. That place is a hypothesis and a target customer to evaluate it against. So let's do that. Rivers and dams. When I think about customers I'd like to build a business for, I start at the back of the book and I pattern match. I know exactly what a great initial customer looks like, one that would be worth my time to build for. So when I have conversations with customers, I'm looking to see if they fit that mold. It's one of the few things in the startup world that isn't malleable. You cannot start a business with a customer that doesn't look like the customer I'm about to describe. Full stop. Great customers are easy to visualize and hard to find. First, they know they have the problem you're solving, and that problem is one of a couple of Urgent, painful, growing, expensive, or frequent. They've tried to solve it, but it's been tough to do. They can clearly visualize and describe the outcome if the problem is solved. And that outcome is emotional, and you understand that emotion. The customer is also accessible. You can find them, and you can get in touch with them. They're willing to pay, meaning they've paid to solve this problem in the past. They're cohesive, meaning they speak with other customers like them about the problem you're solving. And ideally, they're influential, meaning once they solve the problem, other customers will notice and try to copy how they've solved it. And by far the most important, you genuinely care that this customer is helped. In fact, you'd love for the cover of your hometown newspaper to say, quote, avid idea to start up listener, insert your name, is starting a business to do X. And you'd put that on your fridge and you'd be proud about it and you'd send it to your grandparents. If this seems like a lot, it's not. 
Think of each of these characteristics as lottery tickets. The more you've got, the better chance you've got to win. Fill your pockets with them. I've been visualizing customers a lot using the rivers and dams framework I mentioned a few weeks ago. I actually can't stop using it. The basic idea is you need to make sure your customer has committed to a river, that they've already jumped in. They desperately want to reach the end of that river, but various dams are holding them up, keeping them from this massive important goal. Our job is to identify what jumping in the river looks like in the first place, and then identify and remove the dams. We talked last week about how a business is pretty simple, actually. It's just identifying a process customers care about and removing steps. That's what we do. A super obvious example might be studying for the GMAT. If someone commits to going to business school in a year, they need to take the GMAT. If they schedule the test, they are committed. Then they find a GMAT course. At the end of the river is getting into their dream business school. The dams are the GMAT and GMAT associated things. They've indicated they're in the river through their B-school intent and their test sign up. So back to the Airbnb idea. The first thing we need to figure out is what makes this customer tick. Why are they running an Airbnb? What are their goals with it? What are the big problems? How are they solving those problems? And do they think the problem we'd be solving at its core, which is additional income, specifically from their style, is desirable? There's no way to know these things without speaking to Airbnb hosts, so I did. The last place we stayed was the one that spurred the idea, so the last place we stayed is the person I sent a message to over Airbnb. I said that I loved the stay and the style of the home and that I actually had a few questions about being an Airbnb host and wondered if she'd hop on the phone for 20 minutes. Side note, this is casting to the shore. This is actually pursuing an idea. Casting to the middle of the river would be Googling Airbnb hosts selling furniture and trying to find out from some secondhand source whether this idea was valid or not. Don't do that. The Airbnb host said yes. An hour later, we were chatting. I guess it was helpful that we left the room so clean. I jumped into this customer interview with two goals. First, to understand what this person truly hired Airbnb for. And second, to understand whether the problem I'd identified was one they were already trying to solve or were already happily solving. I started the way I love to start these interviews. I asked her to tell me the story of how her Airbnb came about. She got excited. As I'm sure you remember, we don't just tell people what we're up to in a customer interview and ask what they think. We ask them questions about their process and hope they bring up the problem organically. Then we ask questions about how they solve it. Anchoring ruins our hard-fought-for interviews. Don't give up the farm, no matter how hard that is. And if you want interview resources, we've done a few pods on them, and you can also reach out directly, team at gettacklebox.com. She told me her story, and I'm paraphrasing. Quote, We'd always wanted a house on the water in Halifax, but it was too expensive. A few years back, we realized that if we consistently rented out a part of the house, maybe we could afford it. But we didn't want to rent out like our guest room and have strangers walking through our house. We wanted a separate space. So we kept our eyes open for a house that had a separate entrance and sort of a studio apartment type space attached to it. We found this one and we jumped on it. We didn't really do too much financial research first. We just assumed that renting it out would help. But now it's rented nearly every day for the spring, summer, and fall months and has been a huge help paying off the mortgage. She went on to tell me that she was in charge of the decor and the listing and that she'd really gotten into it. She was obsessed with a few Airbnb host newsletters, resources like the website BNB Facts, and other resources that help hosts get better. It actually sounds like there's a slew of them. 
It turns out that the value rating criteria, a huge driver of a listing's overall rating and success, is driven by cleanliness and atmosphere. Her day job was an architect, and she'd had some interior design experience too, and it turned out there was a direct correlation between upgrading the interior and the value rating, which led to her being able to nearly double the price. Then she said something that really perked my ears up. Quote, I spent $200 on four mugs that at the time seemed excessive, but... They've been mentioned in a bunch of reviews and easily 10 guests have messaged and asked where I bought them. I definitely can't say exactly how many bookings they might have driven, but they've definitely contributed to our high rating for sure. I jumped. Have other people asked you about where you bought the furniture or other things in the apartment? She responded, oh, all the time. Probably 25% of our customers do. It might even be 50%. Easy, Brian. Keep it together. I followed up. And have you ever thought about selling that stuff directly to customers? She answered, yeah, of course. But most of the stuff isn't from like Crate and Barrel. These are from small local shops, which is why people love it. Those shops probably don't have referral codes. I thought about buying the physical items and selling them, but then would I need like a warehouse? Would I be buying in bulk to get a discount? And how would I ship? And I'd have to deal with returns and stuff. It just seemed like way more trouble than it was worth. I pulled a bit more. And have you tried anything else to make money on top of the fees? Hmm, she replied, not really outside of Airbnb. But I've gotten really good at sort of productizing the rest of it. Everything from the listing name to the pictures to how you hold days open to get longer trips to communication with guests to recommendations for dinner. This stuff all really matters and I treat it like a business. I was always entrepreneurial and this is my side startup. I asked what the longer term goal was, quote, Definitely to get a few more places to list, probably standalone. We're saving up to buy the next one. There's actually a place on our block we've got our eye on. And do you track income from it? Oh yeah, we've got a financial model and everything. This isn't something we do haphazardly. This is a business that works and we want it to grow. Nova Scotia is growing like crazy as a destination. This is a huge opportunity for us. Well, okay. I had two more conversations with hosts and I'll tell you what, it was wildly easy to get to them. I stuck with Nova Scotia for no other reason than I just thought it would be good to maybe have people close by. Not sure if that holds water, but it's what I did. And all I did was inquire on the Airbnb page of these hosts. First, I searched by places that had lots of reviews that mentioned things like aesthetics and design. Then I sent a direct message saying that I loved their style and had a few questions on aesthetics and would they have a few minutes for phone calls? Most did. Sincere flattery works. So getting in touch was easy and the stories were eerily similar. The original purpose was to supplement rent, but nearly all said this ended up as a business that allowed them to explore their style. I heard things like, I furnished the Airbnb the way I'd love to furnish my home if I didn't have three kids tearing it up all the time. The Airbnbs were expressions and business opportunities, and so much more than just a way to supplement rent. They were absolutely emotional, a huge source of pride. And by the way, a bunch of them were part of a WhatsApp group that chatted about Airbnb host stuff. It was a cohesive market. These people had jumped in the river, with the end being a business they were proud of. This customer was starting to resemble something interesting. They'd all gotten tons of inquiries about where to buy the stuff in their homes. They'd all tried lots of things to make their listings more successful, and they knew what good outcomes looked like, and they were focused on growth. Hmm. The final piece of our Airbnb project, which, by the way, I've been trying to get a great pun name for, and I am striking out, so somebody please hook me up is a hypothesis test. 
The hypothesis test is basically just taking everything we learned from interviews, flipping it around, and seeing if people are interested in what they said they were. Using the river and dams framework, the dam holding up people from making their Airbnb shoppable with an affiliate code is that these pieces aren't from places that would make that easy. They'd have to negotiate with small retailers, figure out referral links, and other sticky things. So our hypothesis is that A, if this were shoppable, guests would buy, which we haven't tested and won't for this pod, but there was some anecdotal evidence as hosts mostly said they got inquiries all the time. And B, if we handled the operations and affiliate side of the business for the Airbnb folks, they would jump at the opportunity. Other assumptions are, of course, things like that we could build a product that scaled on our end and made this process easy, that enough people would buy it to make it profitable, etc., etc. But first things first, let's test if we're right that hosts would do it if it existed. So I made a quick landing page in about a half hour on Wix. The headline said, quote, you've curated the perfect Airbnb. Allow guests to shop your style and earn affiliate revenue on all purchases. Below that, I note, quote, you won't have to hold inventory, interact with stores, or only list pieces from bigger brands. We handle ops and logistics. You get paid. I noted that the product would essentially be a well-designed website for their Airbnb. They could pass it along to their guests. They could post it to social media and so on. Then the call to action. We work with the highest rated listings. Submit yours here to apply with a place for the link to their listing and a space for their email. Then I link to a few listings with the type of style we'd be looking for. I pushed the landing page to the people I'd spoken with and each signed up. I responded noting that they'd been accepted and that the service had an initial setup fee of $500 and was then $49 per month after that. The referral fees would normally be in the 10% range, meaning everything after $500 in sales each month would go to the bottom line. Plenty of these listings had items like couches that could go for a few thousand dollars, so I was hopeful this was a big enough carrot. I have no idea how this price sits. I've got one host who said they would be on board, but they have multiple listings, so the price point is much better for them. That might be a clue on customer. The multiple listings places might have more appetite, but it's a small sample size, obviously. I ended up pushing the site to a few dozen more Airbnb listings, as well as to a few other channels I learned about through the interviews. I'm definitely getting some emails. Maybe there's something here. Maybe not. Final thought. Remember at the end of episodes of Doogie Hauser, he'd write that final thought thing on his computer? That's this section. Imagine that music is playing. My final thought on this idea is that there probably isn't much here. The dam of getting referrals paid and tracked seems like a pain in the butt. And for the 10% commission, I don't love it. It definitely seems like the most impactful part of the product was the outward-facing website for hosts. The Airbnb hosts were extremely proud of their listings and their taste, and they don't really have a way to get that in front of the world if they aren't interested in staying there. Maybe there's something around helping the Airbnb hosts get interior design jobs with their guests. Maybe there's something to aggregating the best items from the best hosts on a dropship site. Maybe something House Hunters related. When I googled House Hunters just now to get to the episode we watched last week, I was told that House Hunters is in season 220. Anyway, this cast might be in the bushes, but the customer is pretty interesting, so there might be something nearby. And remember, there are no trout in the middle of the river. To get to them, we've got to try. Let me know if you do try it, or anything close to it. I'd be curious. And, as always, if you're interested in working with us, head to GetTackleBox.com and apply. We'll respond within 72 hours and can be working on your startup idea with you by the weekend. 
And if you enjoy the pod, please leave a rating and a review. It's how other people find us, and it's wildly helpful. Have a great week.